Welcome to Ecclesia Love, spiritual encouragement through sharing our neighbors' faith experiences. We honor different perspectives and reverence for the topics we share. Through Ecclesia Love, we listen to understand and develop our own point of view. In this partnership with the divine and with one another, we are community alive and vital in the world. You're listening to a previously recorded Ecclesia Circle conversation. To hear more group conversations, visit our YouTube channel, Ecclesia Love for All. <laughs> All right, Anantha and Sunil, you're up. You can open with prayer or whatever you'd like to do. Anantha, you're muted. I'll yield to uh, Sunil to uh, <laughs> let's let's pray let's look to the lord in prayer lord um, on this father's day we come to you our father we pray that our time uh we spend together be edifying and just inspiring like like this beautiful video we saw help us to understand you in our lives better and help us to understand each other and grow stronger in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, so Sunil and I planned uh, for this two sessions, today's and uh, next Sunday's. Um, to talk about our own spiritual journey, um, beginning with beginnings in a non-Christian um, environment, um, and um, and our experiences with truth. I mean, that, incidentally, the the autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi is titled "My Exp My My." Exp my experiment with truth, yeah. So it's it, it's an ongoing experiment in in my faith journey too, uh, coming from India um, into you know um, not exactly a, a country founded in Christian beliefs, but um, but where Christianity is the dominant religion. Um, so uh, we wanted to start off like that. Uh, so um, so Sunil will will first share his faith and his uh, journey, and so that we can uh, be more autobiographical in today's session and leading to uh, how our faith shaped us in the next uh, session, as such. Um, so those are our two part. Uh, plan as such. So, Sunil, you wanna? Good evening, everyone. Uh, great pleasure to have the spotlight uh, on uh, us uh, and particularly me because I like to always play in the shadows and be in the be in the background and just listen in and 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 just stay connected. Um, but for me to share my faith journey, um, I'd like to. Uh, like we use the metaphor of a zoom lens, zoom out a bit from present day, just go back a couple of 
generations, um, about maybe 70 years or so, uh, around the time India got its independence from the British um, uh, imperialism uh, that dominated our country. The second element that I wanted to bring in is how do Christians fit into India's much larger uh, ecosystem, if you will, or in, in the dominant worldview of India? So just, just to throw um, some numbers and some just gain some perspective, India is about 80% Hindu, predominantly Hindu nation, right? And so a Hindu worldview is, they look at the world through the lens of their caste system, meaning what family you were born into is a sort of a primary um, sort of differentiator where you fit into their landscape, right? For example, and, and it is easily um, uh, decodable or easily find identifiable because unlike in the US where there is privacy about where you can hide who you are and what your gender is and what your faith is and what behind every structure possible, just having generic names. In India, you can find who a person is just by his name and his family name, last name itself. So if I accidentally, let's say I'm sitting to a, a, a plane or on a bus or on a train, and he asks me his name and I tell my name. Just in those two sentences, a whole lot of information is exchanged. In their minds, I am already, I passed based into a structure in, in their mind. For example, if I tell my name and I put a family name as something which connotes I'm a Brahmin or a priest from a priestly family, they straight away know I'm from the top echelon or the top tier. I'm like the big cat <laughs> of the society. And instantly there is some degree of value associated to that person. The moment I say I'm from the ruler family or the warrior family, and I kind of walk around with my chest protruded uh, and, and, and I'm a bit muscular and stuff, they instinctively know I'm from the second set of uh, people, which is the Kshatriya family or the warrior family. And the third name comes in, uh, and, and again, they identify it by saying, if God is a person, you came from God's head. Uh, if God is a person, you came from the, the God's chest or uh, the upper body. And then the third one is, if God is, is, a, is a person, the Vaishas, the the merchants, the farmers, the tradesmen, artisans, they, they are from the third part, which is the, the thighs and the, you know, lower, uh, lower body, but upper lower body around the thighs. And if you are from the lowest, which is the shudras, which is the manual labors, meaning they, they do all sorts of labor work and, and, and with their hands, they work really in the lowest there is one set of people that are not part of any part of the human human deity or God's form, which are the Dalits, the really untouchables. And these untouchables are nowhere connected to that God's image. They are, it's like an island away from a, of, of a, la, a body of uh, 
land. So if, for example, somebody comes to know that I, I am from a Dalit family or I'm from an untouchable family, then I'm really not even in the top four. I'm like this way, who, who, you can't deal with those kind of people. So back in the day, Dalits, if they were walking, they were supposed to walk with a bill around their neck. These four members of the family come to know that there is a Dalit coming. They quickly move out of the way so that their shadow does not fall on them. It, it was that bad. Or they, they would always carry, if they are walking around in, in, a, in a building, they would carry a big cloth with them so that they will constantly wipe away their footprints as they are walking by and then make sure that there is, uh, there is nothing. They should also carry a mask. I mean, in last couple of years, we've come to know of a mask, but back in the day, they were supposed to carry a cloth around under their neck so that even their spittle or even their any, um, while they are speaking, nothing falls out of their mouth. They should just constantly keep in their mouth so that it, it doesn't be. For example, if they're in, a, in, in an area where they are thirsty, they, they, if they go to the village well and drink water, they could be killed, beaten brutally and or, and or physically excommunicated from the village for uh, ever or for some, so, so the Dalits were really the worst sort of form, form of uh, uh, community you could belong to. And within those Dalits also, there were some you know, um, bifurcations and so on, but I'll, I'll not bore you with the caste structure. We were, today's focus is not that. But suffice to say that this was how it was uh, even after independence. One of the things that the British government or missionaries who came along with the East India Company tried to do was to do away with the, these kind of social evils. Obviously, they were horrified, some of these British missionaries who came, uh, or even Portuguese missionaries who came from Europe, any of these um, um, non-Indian folks were horrified. For them, the notion that not all men are created equal was just indigestible. So around that time, William Carey, a British missionary, uh, came to India and he in was involved in a huge outreach effort, which kind of started in Kolkata, which is near East India. Let's say it's like Northeast Corridor of, of India. It's like New York is the Northeast Corridor. And then he wove his down towards the south, which is where I, I come from and which is where uh, Dr. Ananta comes from. And his impact has actually, is the, the Canadian Baptist Mission or the American Baptist Mission, which was all efforts that, that subsequently came out because of the transformative work that he, as, as many of you may or may not know, William Carey was a botanist, he's a He's a, a linguist. He is, is a, he's a genius uh, of, uh, of many types. And his contribution to India beyond missionary work is just in the books of uh, history. He first created the first organized arboreum or, uh, or, a, uh, or, a, or a gardening manual or a horticultural manual that allowed him to um, um, profile and write down all the different 
genes and the species of uh, genres and species of all the plants available in the Indian subcontinent. So he, he was a phenomenal man and his impact is directly linked to my story. So two three generations ago, when my great grandfather was a studying to become a teacher. And even if you study, you, you, you would go to a, only a school where you are separated and where you're treated like uh, junk of the earth or the scum of the earth. You just try to do whatever you can and survive within that little bubble called your own caste. And into that ecosystem, a British missionary came on a horseback. And he encountered my great-grandfather and his wife. And as they were talking, one of the first thing that strikes any Indian is, why is this white man talking to the most deplorable in the society? And, and why is he talking to us, who, 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 who we are the creme de la creme, why is he not talking to us? And and obviously, these missionaries did not have any preference. They would talk to anyone who cared to listen because their intent was to just bring the good news and the gospel and the redemptive power of the gospel. So his story resonated with my great-grandfather, this, this great missionary. As a matter of fact, even if you journey into my city and travel about 60 miles from where I lived in the city of Hyderabad, today there is a medium-sized church that allows about 250 or 300 people to gather and worship in, inside the church that was built by my great-grandfather. His name is Levi. Uh, his name prior to conversion was Kotaya, but this missionary gave him a name called Le Levi. And after Levi, uh, named after the, one of the tribes, he came to faith. He promptly chucked the idea of becoming a teacher and he himself became a horseback preacher. He and his wife just traveled around with the villages and continued to uh, do great uh, ministry around this time. And he had six uh, sons. And as he was growing um, um, in, into ministry, so to speak, and his six sons were coming of age, he, sent them, he, he, he accumulated enough money to buy a one-way ticket to the big city of Hyderabad, which is where I grew up in. He sent them a big six, and, and uh, there's one story I'd like to share here. He told them that this ticket, Hyderabad is a one-way ticket forever. They are not even supposed to come back for his funeral should something happen because at the time of his departure or at the time of his farewell speech that he was giving to his six children, he had contracted some kind of a sickness and he was in and out, uh, doing well for a few days and falling ill for a few more days. And you must realize 17 years ago, 70, 80, at that time of um, a couple of generations ago, much prior to independence, the British missionary was in full force. Medical facilities weren't as great as they are now. So he was not sure that he was not going to see his six children again. And he said, should I perish for this sickness? I'm, I'm certain that these villagers will take care of me. You don't even need to come back for my final journey. And before they went, they actually had 
make sure, he made sure that the villagers and around one final time when he fell sick, they, they even built a coffin while he was still alive. And they had a service of dedication and celebrating his life. And he sent these six people away. And my grandfather and his brothers, all six of them came to the big city of Hyderabad. Those days it used to, there wasn't any automobile or anything. They would just either walk or go on carriages with, drawn with bullocks for some time and so on and so forth. And they made their journey to the big city of Hyderabad. These six brothers came into the city of Hyderabad and each one just went into a small pocket where they could afford to live, find jobs, no, uh, just work under known people and so on and so forth. My, my grandfather joined the British army as uh, one of the, you know, helpers, you know, just, just, you know, technicians who will help. Um, another, great, uh, another grandfather, his brother, his oldest became an engine driver in the railways. Another brother became a, a railway employee where he was a guard on, on, on that. One brother actually ran away from the big city and went to Mumbai, Bollywood, and he became a stuntman. He, he, he was obviously the most audacious of the lot. And he went to Bollywood, fell in love with one uh, lady there. It didn't quite work out. He was heartbroken, came back. So we call him the original rebel or the original gangster in our family. And uh, these six brothers, they, they loved each other dearly. No matter where they were, they were a strong bond. And they all looked out for each other. And they all then had their own children. My, grand, my dad is the oldest of 10. He had uh, six brothers, four sisters, two of them passed away. And so he, along with his eight, eight of them together, grew up in Hyderabad. And I literally saw how these six grandfathers loved each other, lived for the Lord, and they built a small community of Kupla brothers. And, and, and within the area that I lived, these six brothers actually started the very church I, I, I was born into. My dad was, a, was very good with his hands. He was an automobile technician. And um, uh, Michelle knows this story because she would have probably read the book, I Will Survive, that I wrote. But I, my dad and my mom, they, they first knew of each other through, through in, back in the days, there was no matrimony website. So it was all through common friends that they come together and they came to in matrimony through, uh, in, 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 the, in the year 68. And then subsequently, I was born. I'm the oldest of four. Now, in all this, the continuing thread was faith. My great-grandfather sowed the seed. The six brothers, my grandfathers, uh, my grandfather and his siblings came to this big city of India, formed this small little church, and they were all actively involved. And I grew up in church, honestly proud of the fact that every uncle that was part of So my home was a big community. And that church was a small home. There wasn't a line that, that, that crossed over between home and family. If, I, if there was a birthday party on Wednesday with one of my cousins, particularly one of the uh, many cousins that dotted my landscape, I would meet them on Friday, stay with them on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and on Sunday again, just be with them on Sunday. So there was like this, this huge little community that, that, that dotted in this small area which wasn't a very affluent area. It is, it is 
if you've seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire, this is like this huge ghetto. And right in that ghetto is this little church called the Baptist Church. Into that, that ecosystem, I was born. And my great-grandfather sent his children to come into the big city from a small little hamlet 60 miles from Hyderabad. And then I was born there. And, uh, and, and my, my grandfather served in the British Army, traveled all over India, came back and put his resting uh, foot, feet finally in that city. My dad, who, who, who started his journey, went all over India in pursuit of jobs and stuff, and, and finally rested in, in Hyderabad. And I, as an oldest son, left Hyderabad in um, 1999, and for the past 23 years, I have lived in six cities around the world, four countries, and three of them really as full-time immigrant. The last 16 years, I've been living in the United States. So my faith story, which started in that little, small, ghetto-like area in Hyderabad, has now finally come to the Big Apple, so to speak, in, in New York area, where and, and I'm so privileged to connect with you all in the last two, three, two and a half years as we journey together. Now, you must realize the fundamental reason I came, my family came to faith was Christian belief is that we are all made in the image of God. And our Indian paradigm was you are a child of a lesser God. So there was inequality in the Indian system. There was no hope. There was no respect. There was no dignity. I'll give you an example. Even when I was working, this is in recent past, if I went into lunch with a Brahmin family and we just hung around, right? I mean, this is the new era where everybody knows it's supposed to treat equally. After lunch, my friend's mother would keep the plate that I ate very separate and so far away in the kitchen that the servant maid, when she comes next day morning, will wash my plate separately and do some cleansing as opposed to the rest of the members' families that ate in that plate. Even today, I've experienced this caste system firsthand. So, and sometimes you're welcome into the house. Sometimes you're sent away from the door. If I, as a child, you don't really understand this and you go away with children. Some friends who introduce their parents, they, they, they know that if I am a Christian, they will let me come in into the front yard of their house. But that's, that's that far and no further. So if we experienced, even today, and in fact, now in the last seven, eight years, of course, the landscape of the country has changed and I don't want to go into the political um, atmosphere in this country, but there is a strong sense of persecution that drove people almost to hopelessness. And in that hopelessness, the fact that a white man decided to look into the eyes of one man and say, Jesus loves you, you are valuable, you are of value, is the most redemptive aspect of the gospel. That transformed three generations of lives. And today, let's tell you, there are at least five or six full-time preachers that are putting our family free around the world. One of my aunt is a pastor in New Zealand. 
Uh, another uh, uh, pastor is a pastor of a big church, a big thriving cosmopolitan church in the city of Hyderabad in the district, reaching all these IT professionals. I'm so proud of them. Another cousin of mine with the same family name is a leadership consultant to many organizations in India. And of course, many of you know my story, a, an immigrant story um, uh, in the corporate world. So the, friends, so that's the point I want to leave and, and draw and share my story and hand it over to Dr. Ananta. My faith comes from a situation where we were disrespected, we were discriminated, we were almost persecuted and at times persecuted for our identity, for being in the Dalit community or somebody from the underprivileged community. Thanks be to God, we found a new identity. And even though we didn't, and many people actually changed their names after conversion, but we did not. We said, our identity does not change here. This uh, earth, no matter how attractive it is, is still a temporary sort of a journey that we are passing through. And so, folks, that's the, that's the story of my faith. I came to know uh, faith, uh, a, a personal encounter with, with Jesus Christ in a youth camp when I was going through the most hopeless situation. Uh, if you like to know more about it, you must listen to my TED Talk. And on that plug, I'll hand it over to Dr. Ananta. All right. Um, so can you all hear me? You can hear you can hear me. All right. So, um, you know, since uh, Sunil is in this uh, IT world and and um, all this, you know, high tech uh, TED Talks and all that stuff, my autobiography is in a printed word uh, published in a book, typical of my generation. Um, so I would I would kind of probably. Uh, share that with you if you if you wish to know more about my story strangely uh, <clears throat> what happened was uh, there was an english uh, literature uh, professor at tcu linda hughes uh, who retired by the way so she was uh, actually a scholar um, uh, in um, uh, em foster I, I don't know how many of you have heard about em foster uh, he wrote a very, very popular uh, book called A Passage to India. Um, and um, so he has, uh, you know, the, so she was an authority on E.F. Foster. So uh, one day she came to my office um, in the journalism department and said, uh, Anantha, I'd like you to write your autobiography for a book that I'm editing on E.M. Foster. Would you please do that for me? So strangely enough, that's, that week I was leaving for um, uh, Oxford University, uh, taking a group of uh, TCU students uh, to study abroad. And uh, so I had ready access to Oxford and Cambridge uh, through a strange circle, which I'll describe. And I actually sat in a colonial city of Oxford to write about my story of growing up in India. It was, it was just a talk about mixed metaphors and ironies, which I can't even imagine. So I actually sat in, in a room 
um, uh, on campus, you know, university college campus, uh, where I wrote my story. And um, uh, so that, that, and it kind of gave me the opportunity to look back. And uh, I always wondered, just like Sunil and all of, you know, Christians growing up in India in, in similar environment, every day something reminds you of the disbelief that I'm in this country. Um, and how did I end up in this country? And what, what unique characteristics were at play in, uh, in arriving in this country and thriving in this country uh, and making it as an immigrant in this country against all many, many odds that one could face, right? So, um, so what Sunil was talking about, his personal history, a lot of flashback, a lot of reminders of how my family uh, also came into being. And uh, it's our story of being Christian growing up in India is also a story of the, the contemporary realities of post-coloniality, how post-colonial societies grapple with their identity, uh, with their faith journeys, with their personal growth, emotional growth. There are so many intersections that go in and out of East and West, North and South, urban and rural. Um, there's so many dichotomies that we cut across on a day-to-day -day basis. And some of those genes are so active and so, uh, uh, you know, at play every day that it just keeps on reminding us of where we are from, what we are doing, and how maybe two generations from now, those histories will be lost because our families growing up in this country as contemporary modern Americans, right? So they would probably look at us like, hey, so-and-so, you know, maybe father, grandfather, great-great-grandfather came from India and supposedly they were Christians back home. But that's about, that's about the cultural memory uh, of our future generations. And I think that's the story of contemporary America too, you know, growing up uh, uh, with, as an immigrant society in this country. But I think my generation and Sunil's probably are, are more grateful that we do carry that cultural memory in first person, you know, uh, and we remember uh, the stories and the um, cultural um, memories transferred to us from our fathers and mothers and grandparents and, and parents, you know, before that as such. So my story actually is, is a, um, is, is a story where, um, uh, in a way, I, I'm, I'm looking at the, the caste system even Christians had when we were growing up in India. Uh, and roughly speaking, uh, uh, just people who are familiar with these denominations will identify, you know, um, the, the, the Catholic Church ran up and down, North India to South India, okay? Catholic Church represented Vatican and um, um, Catholic priests 
uh, at first for generations have arrived from Rome um, and uh, established the churches, uh, Catholic cathedrals, which were some of them were very grand, um, established very, very amazingly uh, uh, incredible uh, convent schools um, and uh, which actually rescued, I would say, multitude of generations of girls who also had equal access to these convent schools uh, along with boys. And they also set up uh, very nice private hospitals or clinics, I would say, you know, um, up and down. And uh, William Carey establishes the earliest of the divinity schools, theology uh, education in Sirampur near Calcutta, where my dad got his undergraduate uh, ed education in, in divinity and, and, and theology. Um, and um, uh, so, and then Anglicans um, started, Episcopals that is, um, started very strongly in the South. Um, and then uh, came um, uh, Lutherans and um, Baptists, and um, probably the, the oldest uh, denomination in, in India because of um, William Carey, and um, uh, Pentecostals and um, Presbyterians and you name it, all this. Uh, and, um, and then Anglicans, the Episcopals became the, uh, the dominant uh, urban um, established church um, and, and in the 50s, uh, Disciples of Christ arrived in India and they took to North, North, North India. Uh, so you don't see them in the South India at all. Um, so in the meantime, uh, in, in 1938, I think, um, Christians realized that there are too many denominations. Uh, let's try to unify uh, all of them and... Uh, started uh, negotiations um, between heads of these, denom uh, these denominations. So finally, uh, 28 years of conversation of that effort, finally established a united Church of North India, Church of South India. And this, this Church of North India and South India had uh, finally, uh, come together to, um, uh, to unify Anglicans, Pres uh, Presbyterians, Lutherans, um, and uh, Wesleyans and Methodists. I think these denominations finally got together. Baptists didn't join, um, uh, and a lot of other, other denominations did not join because this had to be established under a Book of Common Prayer uh, a liturgy um, that had to be followed. Uh, so, you know, some, some denominations chose not to. Um, so Church of North India, Church of South India are dominated now uh, in South India, which has a lot of uh, urban schools, rural schools, hospitals, uh, cathedrals, and all that stuff. So this, this is the modern day version of uh, what Christianity is uh, as a formal religion in India, which Sunil speaks of 
as a minority. So we uh, Christians are only 2.8% of total India's population. Okay. And um, uh, so you have roughly 82% Hindus, about 12% Muslims, uh, and uh, 2% Christians. Then the rest of them are miscellaneous, uh, different faiths, different religions as such. But that 2% of Christianity uh, impacted uh, the, uh, the health industry in India and education uh, industry in India. Both have top established traditions and English medium schools. Um, and um, that's why India became very uh, competent in the English language. Um, and um, rest of India schools had to take, take up that Indian, um, the English mediums education uh, in urban areas. Uh, slowly trickled down some rural areas, but um, you know it's still a minority uh, of people who speak English. But it's still a very dominant uh, language uh, in in India, mainly because of the missionaries uh, started the the English language tradition in India. Um, so in that milieu, uh, in the village uh, caste. Um, environment, um, you know, there was there was always uh, a bus line going through villages, and just like the railroads, you know, if you're on the other side of rail track, uh, you have one cultural identity, and if you're on this side, you are more privileged. You had better lands and things like that. So Christians always found themselves on the other side of the road. Okay, the other side of the main road. There was only one road which went through rural India, most often through cutting through villages. And um, so it was qu quite apparent how where you lived established also your cultural identity, your religious identity, and your access to schools um, and places of worship and things like that. So, um, so my trajectory um, was, uh, simply both my grandfathers on both sides. Um, and uh, they converted to Christianity. They had some lands, which they were, they were kind of, they were farmers and they were, um, they had servants who uh, tilled the land and uh, produced, uh, you know, the products out of, out of agriculture and uh, farming and things like that. So they were relatively okay, you know, not too super wealthy, but they were, they were pretty uh, well off in the sense the, the village life. But well, the conversions played very nasty, very drastic uh, impact on our, uh, on our families because once my grandfathers on both sides converted to Christianity due to exposure from the missionaries who had arrived into these villages. They lost their place in their families. Um, half of the family converted with, with my grandfather on both sides and half did not. So I still have family which is traditionally, which is Hindu, but they do attend the church with the rest of their relatives. Um, 
and then keep keep that religious identity going in in both sides but uh, out of that environment my grandfathers uh, uh, came became the first generation of christians got baptized and they took um, uh, different uh, names of the missionaries who converted them my mother's side my mother's dad uh, was christened uh, baptized as his name was gordon gordon uh, konda gordon gordon man you know the you know flash gordon that's the name my my grandfather on on mom's side uh, received it and my dad's side um, it became uh, uh, isaiah uh, on my dad's side he was baptized as isaiah so ironically uh, their children uh, immediate family did convert along with them uh, to become christians and um, uh, and then by that time missionaries had established english medium schools in these villages so my uh, dad siblings my dad uh, happened to go to these schools um, and jaktial which and they walked by the way miles and miles either they walked or went on bullock carts uh, to these boarding schools to get educated in english and um, uh, so one of these villages actually jaktial named jaktial has a uh, 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 an institute named after my father church of south india um, uh, bishop babeli's institute of pastoral evangelism can you believe that i mean that's the title of the evangelist uh, institute in jaktial uh, named after my dad uh because my dad became the first uh indian bishop uh, of the uh, church of karimnagar um you know for the first time it wasn't a british bishop who ruled that area i mean who governed that the church there uh and dad had an interesting uh, encounter with the british um because uh, he was plucked literally during his uh, elementary school i think fifth grade i think uh to go to hyderabad to another uh um, twin city there called secunderabad which had uh, a hostel which was called wesley hostel uh which all the boys there went to wesley high school and it was a english medium school after that then he went to the uh, the divinity school established uh, by william carey uh, you know century two centuries ago and um, and then eventually he came back to serve in the pastoral um, uh, areas and the villages to uh, teach uh, i mean he became a rural theo- theologian so to speak uh, then he finally got the uh, diocesan fellowship uh of the anglican church in england to go to cambridge uh finally got his postgraduate education in theology uh studying under cs lewis in in uh in cambridge and uh so i did not really know who cs lewis was and and my dad occasionally mentioned his name when we were growing up until i came to this country and um you know in my doctor program at iowa suddenly i started hearing cs lewis name and i said my god that's the name my dad used to mention 
you know? Uh, yeah, Tracy. Can you back up for just a moment and uh -huh. tell us when he was in fifth grade and they they saw something in your dad that yeah. was different? Was it his intellect, his grades, his emotions? Yes. What did, did he say about that? Yeah, yeah. I, I gathered at that time. I, I did ask a lot of questions during, I was, I was writing my autobiography. And uh, dad said that he and his younger brother, uh, out of six siblings, were plucked to go to this English medium school because he had that flair for uh, learning English. And he was very smart, I believe, at that time. You know, he was in fifth grade. So they would, I think the English, uh, the British teachers uh, would detect talent or potential at that time, I guess and would whisk them away uh, after parents were convinced that they should leave home and go to a boarding school um, and years and years, you know? Uh, and that's the way my dad got plugged by that. And just un unbelievable uh, coincidence, I guess, you know? Um, so it's, it's good fortune of working, uh, studying under uh, C.S. Lewis in Cambridge. And, and then he got a teaching stint at Oxford University, which gave me access to his, his uh, fellow faculty, um, which made me look very, very brilliantly influential to TCU because I was opening doors left and right at Oxford. And they thought I had this magical power at Oxford, but nobody knew that it was all my dad's old colleagues who were opening the doors for me. And um, so uh, I cashed in a little bit uh, on that side of uh, glory of my dad. And um, um, I wish I was, I wish I had monetized it, but, but I didn't, you know, uh, but at least, uh, so, um, but there was a tragic uh, underbelly of the story of conversion of my families because we were rejected by uh, these villages. Uh, and like Sunil described, we were relegated uh, to different parts of the village. We were stripped of our land ownerships and, um, and became paupers, so to speak. So we had to depend on the British missionaries to, uh, to even his gen next generation, us, uh, go through British missionary schools on their financial aid, so to speak, you know. Um, but we didn't know the backstory of that. We just went to school because, oh, okay, this is a boarding school and mom and dad uh, are working for the church in the villages and the children are growing up in boarding schools. That was the, the official story of how we came to be. And that kind of had some scars because we, we're forced to live uh, outside of our family unit and we were uh, cheated out of our parental uh, uh, upbringing. Uh, so it was, although we glorified uh, the rise of my dad uh, in the clergy and became the bishop and, and um, all that stuff, uh, I felt empty inside growing up as a Christian because I didn't have a, a parental um, role models. My mom chose to be with my dad and I felt like she gave up her children uh, to boarding schools. 
And um, so the result there was several decades of my, uh, my distrust of the church and of Christianity, because I felt like uh, because of Christianity, my father was taken away from me um, and, uh, uh, and we were forsaken, so to speak, you know? So, um, uh, and that became uh, uh, apparent because of my dysfunctional uh, relationship with the, my spouses. I mean, you know, I, my, my first wife was uh, a blue-eyed blonde uh, TCU undergrad, um, and, I, and I was a faculty member, you know, and, um, and she was actually from the Episcopal background, and so we used to go to the same church, Trinity Episcopal Church on Belay Drive, Michelle, you remember? Um, and uh, that's where her mom, who was my dean at TCU, Priscilla Tate, um, it was all kind of small world, so we felt very comfortable marrying and all that stuff. And uh, Laura, my first daughter, uh, was born in that marriage and still stayed very committed to the Episcopal Church. And um, uh, but I didn't have a role model how to, how to be, um, you know. Uh, all I knew was uh, I, I became a great father. Let's put it that way. But I didn't know how to be a good husband. I had no role model. So it was a pretty traumatic, uh, high anxiety um, counseling. I, I went through several, you know, several years of counseling to come to terms with why, um, you know, I had such uh, misgivings about my faith, about my um, spirituality, about my uh, emotional health. Um, so I was a very troubled uh, PK, you know, uh, and I'm sure uh, preacher's kids uh, in different ways go through that trauma. Um, and I did not know as a child, I identified my dad with God because he was on the damn pulpit all the time. I mean, whenever I saw him, he was like, wow, he's in a cassock, you know, very nice robes with, fancy, um, uh, what do you call them? The um, uh, whatever regalia, of course, you know, priests oh. were. And then he, was, you know, was a bishop. He had this regalia, which, which was uh, tremendously very, um, you know, spiritual and very, I mean, he was deep as a scholar. Um, but one thing he raised us, you know, he gave all of us um, Sanskrit names, okay? Um, uh, did not give us biblical names, uh, strangely enough. Um, and um, uh, so it's Ananta Sudhakar Babili. Babili was our last name, surname. Ananta Sudhakar means, you know, eternal, um, I guess, radiance of the moon. Um, that, that's the, the Sanskrit interpretation of my name. Um, then when the fourth son arrived, my dad had just come back from Germany and his mentor was named, uh, some name Wilfred, Siegfried Wilfred or Wilfred Siegfried, anyway. So my, his fourth son all of a sudden was baptized as Wilfred, Wilfred Babili. And I'm going, dang, so he gets a Christian name and we need to get Christian names, you know, all kinds of stuff. 
And um, then my sister was born uh, and, and she got the name because of a British missionary's wife who was doing phenomenal work in uh, hospitals. She, her name was Dorothy. So my sister was christened, baptized as Dorothy, you know? So uh, all these mixed uh, intersections between East and West and Christianity and Hinduism and all that stuff just shaped our, our spirituality and the way we grew up. And um, so it wasn't really uh, a healthy um, uh, several decades of my life um, because I grappled with uh, religious identity of Christianity and, and the price it came with uh, and the blessings it came with, you know? Um, and, and I did not know that I, I became quite a, um, you know, uh, easy ride, I should say, through my graduate schooling in this country um, because of mastery of my English language. I mean, you know, I would um, just, you know, do all the most difficult courses uh, in everything, PhD level with, with absolute, um, you know, joy and comfort and ease. Um, and uh, I think that was because of my upbringing in a Christian schooling system in India, right? And, uh, uh, and I think Christians in, as immigrants in other countries do succeed um, relatively easy, uh, easy, easier because our access to the value system of Western um, countries um, innately, you know, when we go to church in India, uh, we are singing English hymns, uh, in, in the evening service, we read English Bible, uh, we get sermons in English, we, we all the rituals and, and the order of worship, uh, the Anglican, whatever um, rituals we do are all in English. And we could understand the Western mind without even knowing as an Indian kid growing up in Christianity we got the secrets to Western civilization already. So by the time we arrive here, uh, unlike IT professionals who are Hindus, growing up as Hindus, would arrive and hit a wall socially. Professionally, they are, they're excelling, but they don't know how to make inroads into American society, okay? They, they, they don't make friends with Americans. They don't know American families. They, um, they don't converse at e easily with, with Americans because they don't have that secure comfort level other than knowing English and knowing the IT skills. A lot of them are in the dark, how to penetrate uh, into the American's mind, so to speak. And Indian Christians do that, like, you know, without much effort. Uh, so in that sense, our, we are shaped by our Christian faith uh, in much deeper and more profound ways um, than, um, than growing up as a Christian in a dominant, in a Christianity dominated world. Um, and, um, so in, in that sense, you know, how my, my church shaped me in India, how my parents uh, 
as Christians shaped. Uh, and we saw the examples of Christian living in India. I mean, my dad and mom on every Sunday before church service would, uh, would clean and prepare lepers for the following week with new bandages, um, new medicines, um, and you could see them in, in you know, uh, bowls of bloody water um, and with pus and, uh, and, and blood mixed together. And we as kids watching them do uh, bandaging and cleaning those wounds of some of the worst lepers who, who were excreting horrendously smelly bodily liquids uh, through their extremities, you know? Um, and how would they do that? Why would they do that? I think it, it had that, that Jesus as a healing, as a healer, probably was their role model. And they would sit down with the lepers to clean those things. I mean, no other uh, fellow Indian uh, living in other castes and other places would actually stoop that low to work and touch the lepers. Um, and I saw that as a unique feature of Christianity. Um, and there would be a lot of uh, philanthropy, a lot of uh, people sharing uh, their food and their riches, whatever they had with other people, uh, other un uh, you know, less fortunate people. Um, so it was actually in the rural areas, it was not just faith of Christianity that made them go to church on Sundays and, but they lived Christianity. I think they, they, they had a special uh, relationship with the poorest of the poor uh, in the village. Um, they would feed the hungry. Uh, they would clothe the naked. I mean, this, this, these were all absolutely examples of how Bible-based uh, Christian behavior codified among, among the institution of Christianity uh, in the rural areas and, and, in the, uh, and in the urban areas. I mean, Sunil's parents, uh, uh, Sunil's uh, relatives who are now leading some churches, um, you know, those kind of churches have philanthropy drives, they have health drives, they have clothing, clothes, food, uh, distribution. These are all uh, major aspects of it. Now, Hindus do that. Muslims do that. But um, confined to their uh, temples uh, and, and the places of worship um, more. But Christians actually take it into the villages, take it into the streets, take it into uh, the places where help is needed. Uh, not just wait for people to come to them for to seek uh, assistance as such. So Christianity by living and Christianity by faith, um, I think are, are kind of distinctive elements of, of being Christian and growing up Christian in, in India as such. So we can... I have a question for both of you really. Um... You know, it being such a minority religion, and um, like you said, Anantha, really growing up in poverty and um, 
the other side of the tracks. I think that's what you were referring to about the caste system of Christianity in India is how you were impacted as a result of being in a minority religion, as opposed to there being a caste system within Christianity in India. And if I, did I get that wrong? So you were speaking, you were speaking more of the, the caste system of Christianity in India. You were speaking more in terms of how uh, you were kind of on the other side of the wrong side of the tracks. Of, you're, that's what you're referring to. You're kind of ostracized to some degree. Okay. Um, so, but what, uh, so of, of being in that situation from both of your perspectives, what were the blessings or the lessons that have stuck with you today from growing up in a minority being in a faith that it, as a minority of that faith or in your country, rather than what we're so accustomed to, we take for granted our, regardless of denomination in America, I think we take for granted our Christianity uh, being, it being so dominant and embedded in the culture of the nation as well here. So what, what were the blessings and the, the bigger takeaways for you guys? from being in a minority religion? I think personally speaking, it, it growing up in that status in India prepared me to handle discrimination for life in different situations and different countries, you know? Um, and, uh, and in my case, I, I handled those issues, agree, uh, you know, deep disappointments of how, uh, uh, interestingly, uh, I didn't even feel discrimination um, until late in life. Uh, it's like, I would, I would deny, no, I don't think that's based on skin color or national origin. Uh, I don't think so. You know, it's, it's just, that guy is weird. That's, that's why this is happening, you know. Uh, I would justify it, everything uh, without, feeling race or, or ethnicity as, as the fundamental basis for that. Maybe that optimistic view of, of humanity probably carried me through. Um, and, uh, but as, I, as you reach a higher level of leadership, that began to get more apparent that, that you, know, you, you tend to be, no matter what, you are in the minority, um, you may not, Thing that's going to be a factor, but you are. Let's face it. You accept it. This is not um, happening in other uh, for others. It's it's happening to you. So, uh, so in a way that that's a clear jolt. It's an eye opener. But you have the grace and the strength, inner strength, to accept and persevere it, and fight when you can if you can, uh, but it made me adaptable more uh, than I would have because you face that discrimination back home, I think. You want to answer the same question? Yes, um, the ability to cope with disappointments and, um, and setbacks is something that I take as a silver lining for all mm -hmm. the the struggles you face in in the in the in the repressed uh, 
for example, in the corporate world that uh, I, I don't know if there is uh, any uh, discrimination or persecution in the academia, uh, Professor Bobbily will, will definitely observe uh, whether it, it did in, but I spent my half my adult life working in India and the rest of the other life till, till date working and serving Indian companies. So it's a double whammy. I faced it when I was a child. I'm facing it as a professional. For example, in the, in the a corporate or a business world is a microcosm of the larger world. So even inside, there were times when my promotions were denied, delayed, and no apparent reason. Human resources would recommend my name saying, fulfills all the criteria, is eligible for promotion, what do you want to do? And they send it to either my supervisor or my big boss. And without any explanation, my promotion does not come through. Yeah. And how do you explain that, right? So in this highly educated group of people who went to the top business schools in India, top uh, engineering schools in India, how do you explain some of that? And well, there could be many reasons. Uh, some of could, some of it could be my own incompetence, for example. <laughs> but HR would not agree that I'm incompetent if they sent them that letter, right? So, so as uh, Professor uh, Dr. Ananta said, you start looking at these issues and say, hey, "I handled the shit while I was a kid," you know, and and then you take it on the chin, keep a sunny disposition move on and, and bide your time and wait for the right time. And there is also that spiritual comfort that you get that at the right time, God will come through for you and that kind of a consolation, which is a faith-driven consolation. You, you cannot apply, you cannot survive in the competitive world if you don't have a worldview that will make you resilient enough. And the resilience comes from faith. That is the silver lining. The second thing that I've discovered, and this is something that, Professor um, uh, also referred to is to start identifying with the underdog. Wherever I went, I always lean toward the underdog, the ones who are weak, the ones who are struggling, the ones who need that extra word of assurance, the comfort. And that's what drew me to the prison, uh, uh, Rave prison uh, engagement where I went as a Toastmaster. You know, prisons are the last places where people would want to go and do any sort of outreach, get uh, even um, any engagement, right? So I went into this maximum security prison to share my skills and my, my story with prisoners, not because, you know, I, I had something else massive offer, but because those were the, the very reason that um, the gospel came. The gospel came for the captives, those who are uh, in the dark, who's, who are struggling, who do not have hope, the presentation of. So just by me being the carrier of good news, of sunshine and optimism, I, belong, I, 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 I bring and belong to these dark places. So those were some of the benefits. First, ability to cope and develop resilience. Secondly, identify with the underdog. Thank you. Anybody else have anything for Tracy? I don't know how to ask this. Um, 
I mean, when when this happened, Annette, that um, not just one time, or for you, Sunil, in the workplace, or when you recognize that it was um, it was the color of your skin, or where you were from, or whatever, you didn't get um, you you got looked over at work. Um, was there some some way that you could cope? I mean, I know you said you had your faith, but could could you say something out of? I mean, was it a? I, know, I can't imagine what it, what it must have been like because do you work in like a passive aggressive mode or do you do you say something out of kindness or uh, joke about it to get some reaction to get them to tell you the truth or do you, how do you, how do you uh, navigate that? You know, I always look at these in, in instances as, you know, is this how African-Americans feel? Is this how Hispanic-Americans feel? Mm -hmm. Is this how being a woman in a higher leadership uh, level feel? Mm -hmm. Because you're constantly being overlooked and and minimized. I mean, your, your intellect is minimized, you know, your drive, your ambition, your vision, they all become threats to, uh, to the established uh, top leadership, which happens to be mostly Anglo male. And um, some of them feel very easily threatened by, mm -hmm. you know, people of color uh, and gender wise. And uh, they, um, for example, you know, since I was on the senior management level um, as the provost and vice president for academic affairs, you know, I had 600 faculty members reporting to me and, you know, 14 direct reports of major colleges, institutes, centers reporting to me. I was the intellectual head of, uh, uh, of this at Texas A&M University system. I mean, this is uh, to rise to that level, um, it, it requires a lot of finesse, a lot of navigating, not a lot of, um, um, you know, uh, avoiding landmines. I mean, this this is a treacherous journey to the top, and uh, uh, and your fate actually ends up in the hands of one guy who is your direct report, and if he feels threatened by number two guy, which is me. I'm a goner. I mean, I'm finished. My 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 career, my trajectory can abruptly end right there, and it's all in the hands of one guy who feels um, uh, that I should be put in my place, um, and uh, whatever he was thinking. Because when the board meeting takes place, the 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 cabinet um, president's cabinet meeting, I'm the number two guy sitting next to the number one guy. And then all the heads of finance, um, student affairs, and diff different college, you know, different. Uh, but I'm the academic CEO. I'm a CAO, Chief Academic Officer, and I'm sitting. But before that meeting, there was another meeting, mm. and I did not know. I, I won't know that. And uh, so all the, the other white males, who along with the president have already met uh, about this meeting that we were about to meet. 
And they already had copies of the agenda. They already had the background reports. And I would be asking the president's uh, executive secretary, uh, did we get uh, an agenda for our nine o'clock meeting? It's, it's 8.30. Um, I said, oh, Dr. Pabli, I, I, sent, I sent it already. Uh, maybe look in the, the uh, you know, whatever, that box. What is that trash box? Um, spam. Um, spam, yeah. Things, I, come on, you know, I've been number two guy for, you know, you, you better believe it. Your president's documents will come to me if you had sent it. And, well, everybody would walk in with the copies of the agenda and the reports, and I'm getting it five minutes before the meeting. Saying, oh, sorry, I don't know where it went. I did send it, but uh, apparently you didn't receive it. And I don't know, I don't have a record of it, you know. So I'm gathering all that stuff, walk in, and I'm the most ill-prepared, unprepared guy uh, to contribute to that meeting because I was shut out. And, uh, and then the word would spread saying that, oh, Dr. Babley always comes unprepared to the meetings. He is he's not doing his job right and uh, all that stuff. So it's very, it's those, those benign systemic uh, um, punishment goes on uh, so that you would get bad assessments, you know, bad evaluations. And, and it's a, you know, 360 degree evaluation, right? So you're getting evaluated from everybody. And so my direct reports were giving me glowing reports of my leadership, uh, but the lateral and the people around me are the ones who count and they give the negative reports and, you know, there goes the story. So and, basically uh, you were the number two guy and they treated you like number two. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And strangely enough, the central uh, Texas A&M system uh, had one African-American. Um, he, he was the vice chancellor for um, academic affairs. Now, he would always recognize my leadership and he would always you know, tell me uh, the greatest administrator and leader that I worked with and too bad things didn't work out in Corpus Christi, uh, you know, that type of... Uh, thing he recognizes, but nobody else says those things. So it's- Is he like, the one that took the job in Raleigh? Uh, no, no, he was not the one. The okay. other guy, the other, the other person was my student actually, uh -huh. yeah. So it's that sort of a thing, you know? Uh, very, very interesting. Well, anyone else? Yeah. I, have a, I have a question too. Uh-huh. Desiree? So this seems to really strike where all the politics and the, the Trump and the whole white power movement or whatever it's called is going on in recent years. But do you guys see any end to this in sight? Is this just uh, paranoia on the part of all these white people, white men, or, I mean, do you see hope that there will be some change? Well, it is like if, if you know, if you're, if you have been a good person, when you die, either you go to heaven or you go to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, and you're in Texas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that says it all right there. <laughs> you know, I remember. I don't live in Texas anymore. <laughs> I remember when all that was going on in the man above Ananta. <clears throat> you know, I hate to say this, but I, I called him. I thought he was kind of a bubba. <laughs> if you know what that term means in Texas. And uh, I think his biggest fear was not, and the reason he discriminated so much is Anantha was so much further ahead of him. He had more insight to what was going on because I, I was, I kind of witnessed this on the side. And he just, he did not have the intelligence that Anantha had. And I think it scared the hell out of him. And what he did in those secret meetings, I have no idea. But I kind of knew of the character of the number one guy. And uh, I know the, definitely the character of Anantha. And I just think he knew so much more about the system and had so much more intelligence to the guy that he was scared to death. I want to add to that uh, and a different flavor connecting our faith journey. The reason our boys and girls, Christians in general, who come from immigrant uh, communities particularly stand out is precisely that reason that Ananta referred to. Every Sunday, kids go to Sunday school or they go to youth meeting or youth fellowship or, or they're involved and they understand how events are run, programming is done. They, 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 you don't need to teach a church going kid how things run. I mean, somebody's taking a leadership role, somebody's taking a, an associate role and, and then they, they work as teams. And non-Christian um, folks who come into a corporate world are struck by the, the ease with which we, we navigate. And as was evident in Dr. Ananta's story, that because we just came and some of it is even unconscious competence. We don't even know how to do it. Uh, we, we can't articulate it. But we just navigate that very comfortably. And because of that, we stand out. For example, I conceded an, an event two years ago prior to the COVID where the CEO of our company and our company has only 530,000 people at that time. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. <laughs> so the CEO, number one guy was coming to our city, which is about 200 miles from Pune, uh, from Mumbai on the West coast of India. And these guys were all like getting intimidated and they're saying, who should we hire? Should we hire a professional MC? Should we hire? And then the CEO was also nervous because this was a make or break event for him. It was our fourth anniversary and uh, it was going to be a very tightly controlled uh, event. And, uh, and they're all anxious. And then I was the CMO of that unit. I was working in Santa Clara, California at that time. And I was also in, the, uh, in, in India and I was overseeing the event. And then I said, look, we can just hire one of these young kids who are engineers. Give me a young engineer. I'll coach them and let's get it done with them. They were nervous to the point of saying, 
No, either you get a professional MC from outside or you do it yourself. We are not comfortable risking this event. And I, I'm, I'm, again, from a cost standpoint, it didn't make sense. It's an internal event. Why would you hire it? So let me do it, I said. And I just was myself. I didn't even prepare very hard. And uh, of course, I love public speaking. That's a different uh, um, added asset I had. But I just went ahead and did that. And if you take my story and see how public speaking, uh, love for sermons and all that came as a result of my faith journey, and now I'm in the corporate world, some of these skills just find themselves. Um, and so when I, when I, when I teach on, web, on webinars and Zoom, there are like 600, 500, 400 people at a time. And it does not phase me at all. I, I talk to them like I'm talking to you folks. Being my usual silly self and just cracking jokes at myself and at others. And, and, and that ability to stay comfortable in your skin comes from the school of hard knocks that India gives to, to its young Christians right from their early days. And, and so to, to survive the withstand, uh, I'll give you the one last example and I'll pause. A few years ago when I was living in a, in a township where we were all condos and townhomes and stuff. One lady attacked me and, and the kids that were with me, most of them South Asian kids, and said, you people cause such a racket. And I said, you people? <laughs> and, and I just went into a verbal argument and I said, lady, that is so disrespectful that you say this to these children and we all pay the same amount of uh, HOA, we all have access to the pool, we all and how could you just disrespect us as a community of uh, people? And I just, um, you know, walked away in a half. And since then, I started a campaign to raise more and more South Asian leaders who could get into the board and and start making. And you know what? In three years, there are four guys in a, in the board now who are of South Asian origin, and they are all like they're just changing the dimension of uh, leadership and all the. All those uh, outdated leaders, outdated mindsets, they are slowly fading away. And obviously, because a population like us in New Jersey, Indians are like as, as, as evident as they can be in, in uh, Bay Area, right? So we are all over the map and you cannot just disrespect somebody by the, the complexion of their skin. So that's the kind of a thing that I, I to answer Desiree's question, I don't see hope that very soon we will be a happy, clappy, global family. Kumbaya, my Lord, Kumbaya. I don't see it happening. Polarization is happening in India in a very sharp way. And polarization has happened in, in the USA in, during the Trump uh, era. And it's going to bubble up. A lot of complex, uh, complicated factors are at play. But, uh, but those are all the bad news that we see on television. If you go into communities, if you go into faith communities, churches, there's a lot of quiet, transformative work that gets happened that never makes it to the headlines. So I would urge Desiree not to lose hope and, and not just to read only the, the headlines and what makes what viral news. Instead, the quiet, untold stories that happen in communities like us, ours, where people come together from different walks of life and have conversations like these. These things are happening also, so we can take heart in that. Thank you, guys. Um, 
So one final observation. Um, I uh, tonight, I guess our marketing guru Sunil came up with this. I don't know, but uh, I asked for a title for tonight, and it was "Stranger in the Homeland." And I find it an interesting juxtaposition. And uh, so tonight we heard um, your stories of being strangers in your homeland of India in some ways through your religions. Um, are we going to hear how you're strangers in the homeland and your faith here on this homeland soil next week? Is that where you're going with this? Yes. All right, cool. <laughs> I loved it. I was like, I was looking at that. I was like, which homeland are we talking about, guys? <laughs> so, so like a good student, like a good disciple, I told the guru a couple of options and he, he picked this option. I get an A for the title. I don't know about the content, <laughs> but I certainly got <laughs> gold with the title. <laughs> I think it's great. It's very clever. I'm looking forward to it so much. Um, and on the uh, topic of, of interfaith families and um, being ecumenical in nature, uh, I want to invite you to join me next summer, August 2023 in Chicago for the World Parliament of Religions. Um, I'm planning to go and we can add the, the super duper early bird cut rate is 225, I think. <laughs> uh, and it, the, the, Jim and Tracy are hoping to go. And it, uh, the deadline for that super duper saver rate is July 1. And we do get a discount if there's five or more people. So if you're, if you're all interested and want to know more about it, um, I will send you a link and you can read up on it. Let me know this week. And then um, if you decide later, you can always still go. You'll just wind up paying a little bit more. I think there were four different payment levels or something based on how close it got to the actual event. So um, I thank you guys so much for tonight. Incidentally, uh, Michelle, incidentally, that particular meeting that in Chicago in 1890, okay, was addressed by a Hindu philosopher named Swami Vivekananda. Okay, and um, he started his address by saying. Uh, Dear brothers and sisters of America. And he received a five minute standing ovation wow. when they heard dear brothers and sisters of America. Mm. So as a Hindu philosopher, I think he connected with the world religious leaders that day mm. by saying, starting with that. Mm. And, and he is a phenomenal Philosopher, by the He's way. a great orator as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What, what was that, Sunil? He's a great orator. Orator. Yeah. Well, um, I'm really excited about it. I have uh, connected with uh, a Sufi, uh, uh, an imam in the Sufi tradition. Wow. Um, and uh, he lives out in Seattle, and he told me about it and uh, that he would be going. So there's like 10,000 people go to this. Thing. Yes, it's phenomenal. Yes. It's huge. So 
exciting. All right. Well, um, would someone like to close us in prayer? I volunteer, Sunil. <laughs> you open us. You have to close. You know, Professor Anabel. <laughs> <laughs> Is someone going to do it? <laughs> I'll okay, do it. I'll close it. Okay. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on our beginnings of our faith and our common paths to spiritual growth, Father. We guide us, uh, help us to understand you and understand the spiritual um, elements of our existence while we are here on earth. Help us and guide us into the future as we grow in you. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a sample Ecclesia Circle Conversation by the inclusive and loving faith community of Ecclesia Global, a nonprofit supporting the journey of spiritual transformation for all people. Be inspired to greater curiosity and faith by visiting our YouTube channel, Ecclesia Love for All, and that's Ecclesia Love, the number four, all, or at our website, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A-L-O-V-E.com, ecclesialove.com.